Chapter Eight of the Stones of Venice, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Pamela Krantz. The Stones of Venice, Volume One by John Ruskin. Chapter Eight: The Shaft. Section One. We have seen in the last chapter how, in converting the wall into the square or cylindrical shaft, we parted at every change of form with some quantity of material. In proportion to the quantity thus surrendered is the necessity that what we retain should be good of its kind, and well set together, since everything now depends on it. It is clear also that the best material and the closest concentration is that of the natural crystalline rocks, and that by having reduced our wall into the shape of shafts, we may be enabled to avail ourselves of this better material, and to exchange cemented bricks for crystallized blocks of stone. Therefore the general idea of a perfect shaft is that of a single stone hewn into a form more or less elongated and cylindrical. Under this form, or at least under the ruder one, of a long stone set upright, the conception of true shafts appears first to have occurred to the human mind, for the reader must note this carefully, once for all, it does not in the least follow that the order of architectural features, which is most reasonable in their arrangement, is most probable in their invention. I have theoretically deduced shafts from walls but shafts were never so reasoned out in architectural practice. The man who first propped a thatched roof with poles was the discoverer of their principle, and he who first hewed a long stone into a cylinder the perfecter of their practice. Section 2. It is clearly necessary that shafts of this kind, we will call them for convenience block shafts, should be composed of stone not liable to flaws or fissures, and therefore that we must no longer continue our argument as if it were always possible to do what is to be done in the best way. For the style of a national architecture may evidently depend, in great measure, upon the nature of the rocks of the country. Our own English rocks, which supply excellent building stone from their thin and easily divisible beds, are for the most part entirely incapable of being worked into shafts of any size, except only the granites and windstones, whose hardness renders them intractable for ordinary purposes. And English architecture therefore supplies no instances of the block shaft applied on an extensive scale, while a facility of obtaining large masses of marble has in Greece and Italy been partly the cause of the adoption of certain noble types of architectural form peculiar to those countries, or, when occurring elsewhere, derived from them. We have not, however, in reducing our walls to shafts, calculated on the probabilities of our obtaining better materials than those of which the walls were built, and we shall therefore first consider the form of shaft which will be best when we have the best materials, and then consider how far we can imitate or how far it will be wise to imitate this form with any materials we can obtain. Section 3. 
now as i gave the reader the ground and the stones that he might for himself find out how to build his wall i shall give him the block of marble and the chisel that he may himself find out how to shape his column let him suppose the elongated mass so given him rudely hewn to the thickness which he has calculated will be proportioned to the weight it has to carry the conditions of stability will require that some allowance be made in finishing it for any chance of slight disturbance or subsidence of the ground below and that as everything must depend on the uprightness of the shaft as little chance should be left as possible of its being thrown off its balance it will therefore be prudent to leave it slightly thicker at the base than at the top this excess of diameter at the base being determined the reader is to ask himself how most easily and simply to smooth the column from one extremity to the other to cut it into a true straight-sided cone would be a matter of much trouble and nicety and would incur the continual risk of chipping into it too deep why not leave some room for a chance stroke work it slightly very slightly convex and smooth the curve by the eye between the two extremities you will save much trouble in time and the shaft will be all the stronger this is accordingly the natural form of a detached block shaft it is the best no other will ever be so agreeable to the mind or eye i do not mean that it is not capable of more refined execution or of the application of some of the laws of aesthetic beauty but that it is the best recipient of execution and subject of law better in either case than if you had taken more pains and cut it straight section four you will observe however that the convexity is to be very slight and that the shaft is not to bulge in the center but to taper from the root in a curved line the peculiar character of the curve you will discern better by exaggerating in a diagram the conditions of its sculpture let lower cases a a b b at uppercase a figure thirteen be the rough block of the shaft laid on the ground and as thick as you can by any chance require it to be you will leave it of this full thickness at its base at uppercase a but at the other end you will mark off upon it the diameter lower cases c d which you intended to have at the summit you will then take your mallet and chisel and working from lower cases c and d you will roughly knock off the corners shaded in the figure so as to reduce the shaft to the figure described by the inside lines in uppercase a and the outside lines in uppercase b you then proceed to smooth it you chisel away the shaded parts in uppercase b and leave your finished shaft of the form of the inside lines lower cases e g f h the result of this operation will be of course that the shaft tapers faster towards the top than it does near the ground observe this carefully it is a point of great future importance section five so far of the shape of detached or block shafts we can carry the type no farther on merely structural considerations let us pass to the shaft of inferior materials unfortunately in practice this step must be soon made 
it is alike difficult to obtain transport and raise block shafts more than ten or twelve feet long except in remarkable positions and as pieces of singular magnificence large pillars are therefore always composed of more than one block of stone such pillars are either jointed like basalt columns and composed of solid pieces of stone set one above another or they are filled up towers built of small stones cemented into a mass with more or less of regularity keep this distinction carefully in mind it is of great importance for the jointed column every stone composing which however thin is so to speak a complete slice of the shaft is just as strong as the block pillar of one stone so long as no forces are brought into action upon it which would have a tendency to cause horizontal dislocation but the pillar which is built as a filled-up tower is of course liable to fissure in any direction if its cement give way but in either case it is evident that all constructive reason of the curved contour is at once destroyed far from being an easier natural procedure the fitting of each portion of the curve to its fellow in the separate stones would require painful care and considerable masonic skill while in the case of the filled-up tower the curve outwards would be even unsafe for its greatest strength and that the more in proportion to its careless building lies in its bark or shell of outside stone and this if curved outwards would at once burst outwards if heavily loaded above if therefore the curved outline be ever retained in such shafts it must be in obedience to aesthetic laws only section six but farther not only the curvature but even the tapering by straight lines would be somewhat difficult of execution in the pieced column where indeed the entire shaft is composed of four or five blocks set one upon another the diameters may be easily determined at the successive joints and the stones chiseled to the same slope but this becomes sufficiently troublesome when the joints are numerous so that the pillar is like a pile of cheeses or when it is to be built of small and irregular stones we should be naturally led in the one case to cut all the cheeses to the same diameter and the other to build by the plumb line and in both to give up the tapering altogether section seven farther since the chance in the one case of horizontal dislocation in the other of irregular fissure is much increased by the composition of the shaft out of joints or small stones a larger bulk of shaft is required to carry the given weight and caterus paribus jointed and cemented shafts must be thicker in proportion to the weight they carry than those which are of one block we have here evidently natural causes of a very marked division in schools of architecture one group composed of buildings whose shafts are either of a single stone or of few joints the shafts therefore being gracefully tapered and reduced by successive experiments to the narrowest possible diameter proportioned to the weight they carry and the other group embracing those buildings whose shafts are of many joints or of small stones shafts which are therefore not tapered and rather thick and ponderous in proportion to the weight they carry 
the latter school being evidently somewhat imperfect and inelegant as compared with the former it may perhaps appear also that this arrangement of the materials in cylindrical shafts at all would hardly have suggested itself to a people who possessed no large blocks out of which to hew them and that the shaft built of many pieces is probably derived from and imitative of the shaft hewn from few or from one section eight if therefore you take a good geological map of europe and lay your finger upon the spots where volcanic influences supply either travertine or marble in accessible and available masses you will probably mark the points where the types of the first school have been originated and developed if in the next place you will mark the districts where broken and rugged basalt or windstone or slaty sandstone supply materials on easier terms indeed but fragmentary and unmanageable you will probably distinguish some of the birthplaces of the derivative and less graceful school you will in the first case lay your finger on pestum agrigentum and athens in the second on durham and lindisfarne the shafts of the great primal school are indeed in their first form as massy as those of the other and the tendency of both is to continual diminution of their diameters but in the first school it is a true diminution in the thickness of the independent pier in the last it is an apparent diminution obtained by giving it the appearance of a group of minor piers the distinction however with which we are concerned is not that of slenderness but a vertical or curved contour and we may note generally that while throughout the whole range of northern work the perpendicular shaft appears in continually clearer development throughout every group which has inherited the spirit of the greek the shaft retains its curved or tapered form and the occurrence of the vertical detached shaft may at all times in european architecture be regarded as one of the most important collateral evidences of northern influence section nine it is necessary to limit this observation to european architecture because the egyptian shaft is often untapered like the northern it appears that the central southern or greek shaft was tapered or curved on aesthetic rather than constructive principles and the egyptian which precedes and the northern which follows it are both vertical the one because the best form had not been discovered the other because it could not be attained both are in a certain degree barbaric and both possess in combination and in their ornaments a power altogether different from that of the greek shaft and at least as impressive if not as admirable section ten we have hitherto spoken of shafts as if their number were fixed and only their diameter variable according to the weight to be borne but this supposition is evidently gratuitous for the same weight may be carried either by many and slender or by few and massy shafts if the reader will look back to figure nine he will find the number of shafts into which the wall was reduced to be dependent altogether upon the length of the spaces lower cases a b a b etc a length which was arbitrarily fixed we are at liberty to make these spaces of what length we choose 
and in so doing to increase the number and diminish the diameter of the shafts or vice versa section eleven supposing the materials are in each case to be of the same kind the choice is in great part at the architect's discretion only there is a limit on the one hand to the multiplication of the slender shaft and the inconvenience of the narrowed interval and on the other to the enlargement of the massy shaft and the loss of breadth to the building footnote in saying this it is assumed that the interval is one which is to be traversed by men and that a certain relation of the shafts and intervals to the size of the human figure is therefore necessary when shafts are used in the upper stories of buildings or on a scale which ignores all relation to the human figure no such relative limits exist either to slenderness or solidity End footnote. that will be commonly the best proportion which is a natural mean between the two limits leaning to the side of grace or of grandeur according to the expressional intention of the work i say commonly the best because in some cases this expressional invention may prevail over all other considerations and a column of unnecessary bulk or fantastic slightness be adopted in order to strike the spectator with awe or with surprise footnote vide the interesting discussion of this point in mr ferguson's account of the temple of karnak principles of beauty in art page two nineteen End footnote. the architect is however rarely in practice compelled to use one kind of material only and his choice lies frequently between the employment of a larger number of solid and perfect small shafts or a less number of pieced and cemented large ones it is often possible to obtain from quarries near at hand blocks which might be cut into shafts eight or twelve feet long and four or five feet round when larger shafts can only be obtained in distant localities and the question then is between the perfection of smaller features and the imperfection of larger we shall find numberless instances in italy in which the first choice has been boldly and i think most wisely made and magnificent buildings have been composed of systems of small but perfect shafts multiplied and superimposed so long as the idea of the symmetry of a perfect shaft remained in the builder's mind his choice could hardly be directed otherwise and the adoption of the built and tower-like shaft appears to have been the result of a loss of this sense of symmetry consequent on the employment of intractable materials section twelve but farther we have up to this point spoken of shafts as always set in ranges and at equal intervals from each other but there is no necessity for this and material differences may be made in their diameters if two or more be grouped so as to do together the work of one large one and that within or nearly within the space which the larger one would have occupied section thirteen let upper cases a b c figure fourteen be three surfaces of which upper cases b and c contain equal areas and each of them double that of uppercase a then supposing them all loaded to the same height uppercases b or c would receive twice as much weight as uppercase a 
Therefore, to carry uppercases B or C loaded, we should need a shaft of twice the strength needed to carry uppercase A. Let S be the shaft required to carry uppercase A, and S2 the shaft required to carry uppercases B or C. Then S3 may be divided into two shafts, or S2 into four shafts, as at S3, all equal in area or solid contents. Footnote. I have assumed that the strength of similar shafts of equal height is as the squares of their diameters, which, though not actually a correct expression, is sufficiently so for all our present purposes. End footnote and the mass uppercase A might be carried safely by two of them, and the masses uppercases B and C each by four of them. Now if we put the single shafts each under the center of the mass they have to bear, as represented by the shaded circles at lower cases A, A2, A3, the masses uppercases A and C are both of them very ill-supported, and even uppercase B insufficiently but apply the four and the two shafts as at lower cases b b2 b3 and they are supported satisfactorily let the weight on each of the masses be doubled and the shafts doubled in area then we shall have such arrangements as those at lower cases c c2 c3 and if again the shafts and weight be doubled we shall have lower cases d d2 d3 Section 14. Now it will at once be observed that the arrangement of the shafts in the series of uppercases B and C is always exactly the same in their relations to each other. Only the group of uppercase B is set evenly, and the group of uppercase C is set obliquely, the one carrying a square, the other a cross. You have in these two series the primal representations of shaft arrangement in the southern and northern schools, while the group lowercase b, of which lowercase b2 is the double, set evenly, and lowercase c2 the double, set obliquely, is common to both. The reader will be surprised to find how all the complex and varied forms of shaft arrangement will range themselves into one or other of these groups and still more surprised to find the oblique or cross-set system on the one hand and the square-set system on the other, severally distinctive of southern and northern work. The dome of St. Mark's and the crossing of the nave and transepts of Beauvais are both carried by square piers, but the piers of St. Mark's are set square to the walls of the church, and those of Beauvais obliquely to them and this difference is even a more essential one than that between the smooth surface of the one and the reedy complication of the other. The two squares here in the margin, figure 15, are exactly of the same size, but their expression is altogether different, and in that difference lies one of the most subtle distinctions between the Gothic and Greek spirit, from the shaft which bears the building to the smallest decoration. The Greek square is by preference set evenly, the Gothic square obliquely, and that so constantly that wherever we find the level or even square occurring as a prevailing form, either in plan or decoration, in early northern work, 
there we may at least suspect the presence of a southern or greek influence and on the other hand wherever the oblique square is prominent in the south we may confidently look for farther evidence of the influence of the gothic architects the rule must not of course be pressed far when in either school there has been determined search for every possible variety of decorative figures and accidental circumstances may reverse the usual system in special cases but the evidence drawn from this character is collaterally of the highest value and the tracing it out is a pursuit of singular interest thus the pisan romanesque might in an instant be pronounced to have been formed under some measure of lombardic influence from the oblique squares set under its arches and in it we have the spirit of northern gothic affecting details of the southern obliquity of square in magnificently shafted romanesque at monza on the other hand the leveled square is the characteristic figure of the entire decoration of the facade of the duomo eminently giving it southern character but the details are derived almost entirely from the northern gothic here then we have southern spirit and northern detail of the cruciform outline of the load of the shaft a still more positive test of northern work we shall have more to say in the twenty-eighth chapter we must at present note certain farther changes in the form of the grouped shaft which open the way to every branch of its endless combinations southern or northern section fifteen number one if the group at lowercase d three figure fourteen be taken from under its loading and have its centre filled up it will become a quatrefoil and it will represent in their form of most frequent occurrence a family of shafts whose plans are foiled figures trefoils quatrefoils sinkfoils etc of which a trefoiled example from the frari at venice is the third in plate two and a quatrefoil from salisbury the eighth it is rare however to find in gothic architecture shafts of this family composed of a large number of foils because multifoiled shafts are seldom true grouped shafts but are rather canaliculated conditions of massy piers the representatives of this family may be considered as the quatrefoil on the gothic side of the alps and the egyptian multifoiled shaft on the south approximating to the general type lowercase b figure sixteen section sixteen exactly opposed to this great family is that of shafts which have concave curves instead of convex on each of their sides but these are not properly speaking grouped shafts at all and their proper place is among decorated piers only they must be named here in order to mark their exact opposition to the foiled system in their simplest form represented by lowercase c figure sixteen they have no representatives in good architecture being evidently weak and meagre but approximations to them exist in late gothic as in the vile cathedral of orleans and in modern cast-iron shafts in their fully developed form they are the greek doric lowercase a figure sixteen and occur in caprices of the romanesque and italian gothic lowercase d figure sixteen is from the duomo of monza 
Section 17, Number 2. Between lowercases c3 and d3 of figure 14, there may be evidently another condition represented at 6, plate 2, and formed by the insertion of a central shaft within the four external ones. This central shaft we may suppose to expand in proportion to the weight it has to carry. If the external shafts expand in the same proportion, the entire form remains unchanged, but if they do not expand, they may 1. be pushed out by the expanding shaft, or 2. be gradually swallowed up in its expansion, as at 4, plate 2. If they are pushed out, they are removed farther from each other by every increase of the central shaft, and others may then be introduced in the vacant spaces, giving on the plan a central orb with an ever-increasing host of satellites, 10, plate 2 the satellites themselves often varying in size, and perhaps quitting contact with a central shaft. Suppose them in any of their conditions fixed, while the inner shaft expands and they will be gradually buried in it, forming more complicated conditions of 4, plate 2. The combinations are thus altogether infinite, even supposing the central shaft to be circular only, but their infinity is multiplied by many other infinities when the central shaft itself becomes square or crosslet on the section, or itself multifoiled, 8, plate 2, with satellite shafts eddying about its recesses and angles in every possible relation of attraction. Among these endless conditions of change, the choice of the architect is free, this only being generally noted. That is, the whole value of such piers depends, first, upon their being wisely fitted to the weight above them, and secondly, upon their all working together, and one not failing the rest, perhaps to the ruin of all, he must never multiply shafts without visible cause in the disposition of members superimposed. Footnote. How far this condition limits the system of shaft grouping we shall see presently. The reader must remember that we at present reason respecting shafts in the abstract only. End footnote. And in his multiplied group he should, if possible, avoid a marked separation between the large central shaft and its satellites. For if this exist, the satellites will either appear useless altogether, or else, which is worse, they will look as if they were meant to keep the central shaft together by wiring or caging it in like iron rods set round a supple cylinder, a fatal fault in the piers of Westminster Abbey, and, in a less degree, in the noble nave of the Cathedral of Bourges. Section 18. While, however, we have been thus subdividing or assembling our shafts, how far has it been possible to retain their curved or tapered outline? So long as they remain distinct and equal, however close to each other, the independent curvature may evidently be retained. But when once they come in contact, it is equally evident that a column formed of shafts touching at the base and separate at the top would appear as if in the very act of splitting asunder. Hence, in all the closely arranged groups, and especially those with a central shaft, the tapering is sacrificed, and with less cause for regret because it was a provision against subsidence or distortion which cannot now take place with the separate members of the group. 
evidently the work if safe at all must be executed with far greater accuracy and stability when its supports are so delicately arranged than would be implied by such precaution in grouping shafts therefore a true perpendicular line is in nearly all cases given to the pier and the reader will anticipate that the two schools which we have already found to be distinguished the one by its perpendicular and pieced shafts and the other by its curved and block shafts will be found divided also in their employment of grouped shafts it is likely that the idea of grouping however suggested will be fully entertained and acted upon by the one but hesitatingly by the other and that we shall find on the one hand buildings displaying sometimes massy piers of small stones sometimes clustered piers of rich complexity and on the other more or less regular succession of block shafts each treated as entirely independent of those around it section nineteen farther the grouping of shafts once admitted it is probable that the complexity and richness of such arrangements would recommend them to the eye and induce their frequent even their unnecessary introduction so that weight which might have been borne by a single pillar would be in preference supported by four or five and if the stone of the country whose fragmentary character first occasioned the building and piecing of the large pier were yet in beds consistent enough to supply shafts of very small diameter the strength and simplicity of such a construction might justify it as well as its grace the fact however is that the charm which the multiplication of line possesses for the eye has always been one of the chief ends of the work in the grouped schools and that so far from employing the grouped piers in order to the introduction of very slender block shafts the most common form in which such piers occur is that of a solid jointed shaft each joint being separately cut into the contour of the group required section twenty we have hitherto supposed that all grouped or clustered shafts have been the result or the expression of an actual gathering and binding together of detached shafts this is not however always so for some clustered shafts are little more than solid piers channeled on the surface and their form appears to be merely the development of some longitudinal furrowing or striation on the original single shaft that clustering or striation whichever we choose to call it is in this case a decorative feature and to be considered under the head of decoration section twenty one it must be evident to the reader at a glance that the real serviceableness of any of these grouped arrangements must depend upon the relative shortness of the shafts and that when the whole pier is so lofty that its minor members become mere reeds or rods of stone those minor members can no longer be charged with any considerable weight and the fact is that in the most complicated gothic arrangements when the pier is tall and its satellites stand clear of it no real work is given them to do and they might all be removed without endangering the building they are merely the expression of a great consistent system and are in architecture what is often found in animal anatomy a bone or process of a bone useless under the ordained circumstances of its life to the particular animal in which it is found 
and slightly developed but yet distinctly existent and representing for the sake of absolute consistency the same bone in its appointed and generally useful place either in skeletons of all animals or in the genus to which the animal itself belongs section twenty two farther as it is not easy to obtain pieces of stone long enough for these supplementary shafts especially as it is always unsafe to lay a stratified stone with its beds upright they have been frequently composed of two or more short shafts set upon each other and to conceal the unsightly junction a flat stone has been interposed carved into certain mouldings which have the appearance of a ring on the shaft now observe the whole pier was the gathering of the whole wall the base gathers into base the veil into the shaft and the string courses of the veil gather into these rings and when this is clearly expressed and the rings do indeed correspond with the string courses of the wall veil they are perfectly admissible and even beautiful but otherwise and occurring as they do in the shafts of westminster in the middle of continuous lines they are but sorry makeshifts and of late since gas has been invented have become especially offensive from their unlucky resemblance to the joints of gas pipes or common water pipes there are two leaden ones for instance on the left hand as one enters the abbey at poet's corner with their solderings and funnels looking exactly like rings and capitals and most disrespectfully mimicking the shafts of the abbey inside thus far we have traced the probable conditions of shaft structure in pure theory i shall now lay before the reader a brief statement of the facts of the thing in time past and present section twenty three in the earliest and grandest shaft architecture which we know that of egypt we have no grouped arrangements properly so called but either single and smooth shafts or richly reeded and furrowed shafts which represent the extreme conditions of a complicated group bound together to sustain a single mass and are indeed without doubt nothing else than imitations of bundles of reeds or of clusters of lotus footnote the capitals being formed by the flowers or by a representation of the bulging out of the reeds at the top under the weight of the architrave End footnote. but in these shafts there is merely the idea of a group not the actual function or structure of a group they are just as much solid and simple shafts as those which are smooth and merely by the method of their decoration present to the eye the image of a richly complex arrangement section twenty four after these we have the greek shaft less in scale and losing all suggestion or purpose of suggestion of complexity its so-called flutings being visibly as actually an external decoration section twenty five the idea of the shaft remains absolutely single in the roman and byzantine mind but true grouping begins in christian architecture by the placing of two or more separate shafts side by side each having its own work to do then three or four still with separate work then by such steps as those above theoretically pursued the number of the members increases while they coagulate into a single mass 
and we have finally a shaft apparently composed of thirty forty fifty or more distinct members a shaft which in the reality of its service is as much a single shaft as the old egyptian one but which differs from the egyptian in that all its members how many soever have each individual work to do and a separate rib of arch or roof to carry and thus the great christian truth of distinct services of the individual soul is typified in the christian shaft and the old egyptian servitude of the multitudes the servitude inseparable from the children of ham is typified also in that ancient shaft of the egyptians which in its gathered strength of the river reeds seems as the sands of the desert drift over its ruin to be intended to remind us forever of the end of the association of the wicked can the rush grow up without mire or the flag grow without water so are the paths of all that forget god and the hypocrites hope shall perish section twenty six let the reader then keep this distinction of the three systems clearly in his mind egyptian system an apparent cluster supporting a simple capital and single weight greek and roman system single shaft single weight gothic system divided shafts divided weight at first actually and simply divided at last apparently and infinitely divided so that the fully formed gothic shaft is a return to the egyptian but the weight is divided in the one and undivided in the other section twenty seven the transition from the actual to the apparent cluster in the gothic is a question of the most curious interest i have thrown together the shaft sections in plate two to illustrate it and exemplify what has been generally stated above footnote i have not been at the pains to draw the complicated piers in this plate with absolute exactitude to the scale of each they are accurate enough for their purpose those of them respecting which we shall have farther question will be given on a much larger scale End footnote. number one the earliest the most frequent perhaps the most beautiful of all the groups is also the simplest the two shafts arranged as at lower cases b or c figure fourteen above bearing an oblong mass and substituted for the still earlier structure lower case a figure fourteen in plate seventeen chapter twenty seven are three examples of the transition the one on the left at the top is the earliest single shafted arrangement constant in the rough romanesque windows a huge hammer-shaped capital being employed to sustain the thickness of the wall it was rapidly superseded by the double shaft as on the right of it a very early example from the cloisters of the duomo verona Beneath is a most elaborate and perfect one from St. Zeno of Verona, where the group is twice complicated, two shafts being used, both with quatrefoil sections. The plain double shaft, however, is by far the most frequent, both in the northern and southern Gothic, but for the most part early. It is very frequent in cloisters, and in the singular one of St. Michael's Mount, Normandy, a small pseudo-arcade runs along between the pairs of shafts, a miniature aisle. The group is employed on a magnificent scale, but ill-proportioned. For the main piers of the apse of the Cathedral of Coutances, 
its purpose to conceal one shaft behind the other and make it appear to the spectator from the nave as if the apse were sustained by single shafts of inordinate slenderness the attempt is ill-judged and the result unsatisfactory section twenty eight number two when these pairs of shafts come near each other as frequently at the turnings of angles figure seventeen the quadruple group results lowercase b two figure fourteen of which the lombardic sculptors were excessively fond usually tying the shafts together in their center in a lover's knot they thus occur in plate five from the broletto of como at the angle of san michel of lucca plate twenty one and in the balustrade of st mark's this is a group however which i have never seen used on a large scale footnote the largest i remember support a monument in st zeno of verona they are of red marble some ten or twelve feet high End footnote. section twenty nine number three such groups consolidated by a small square in their center form the shafts of st zeno just spoken of and figured in plate seventeen which are among the most interesting pieces of work i know in italy i give their entire arrangement in figure eighteen both shafts have the same section but one receives a half turn as it ascends giving it an exquisite spiral contour the plan of their bases with their plinth is given at two plate two and note it carefully for it is an epitome of all that we observed above respecting the oblique and even square it was asserted that the oblique belonged to the north the even to the south we have here the northern lombardic nation naturalized in italy and behold the oblique and even quatrefoil linked together not confused but actually linked by a bar of stone as seen in plate seventeen under the capitals number four next to these observe the two groups of five shafts each five and six plate two one oblique the other even both are from upper stories the oblique one from the triforium of salisbury the even one from the upper range of shafts in the façade of st mark's at venice footnote the effect of this last is given in plate six of the folio series End footnote. section thirty around these central types are grouped in plate two four simple examples of the satellitic cluster all of the northern gothic four from the cathedral of amiens seven from that of lyons nave pier eight the same from salisbury ten from the porch of notre dame dijon having satellites of three magnitudes nine is one of the piers between the doors of the same church with shafts of four magnitudes and is an instance of the confusion of mind of the northern architects between piers proper and jam mouldings noticed farther in the next chapter section thirty one for this figure nine which is an angle at the meeting of two jams is treated like a rich independent shaft and the figure below twelve which is half of a true shaft is treated like a meeting of jams all these four examples belonging to the oblique or northern system the curious trefoil plan three lies between the two as the double quatrefoil next it unites the two 
the trefoil is from the frari venice and has a richly worked capital in the byzantine manner an imitation i think of the byzantine work by the gothic builders one is to be compared with it being one of the earliest conditions of the cross shaft from the atrium of san ambrogio at milan thirteen is the nave pier of san michel at pavia showing the same condition more fully developed and eleven another nave pier from vienne on the rhone of far more distinct roman derivation for the flat pilaster is set to the nave and is fluted like an antique one twelve is the grandest development i have ever seen of the cross shaft with satellite shafts in the nooks of it it is half of one of the great western piers of the cathedral of bourges measuring eight feet each side thirty-two round footnote the entire development of this cross system in connection with the vaulting ribs has been most clearly explained by professor willis architecture of middle ages chapter four and i strongly recommend every reader who is inclined to take pains in the matter to read that chapter i have been contented in my own text to pursue the abstract idea of shaft form End footnote. then the one below fifteen is half of a nave pier of rouen cathedral showing the mode in which such conditions as that of dijon nine and that of bourges twelve were fused together into forms of inextricable complexity inextricable i mean in the irregularity of proportion and projection for all of them are easily resolvable into simple systems in connection with the roof ribs this pier of rouen is a type of the last condition of the good gothic from this point the small shafts begin to lose shape and run into narrow fillets and ridges projecting at the same time farther and farther in weak tongue-like sections as described in the seven lamps i have only here given one example of this family an unimportant but sufficiently characteristic one sixteen from saint gervais of falaise one side of the nave of that church is norman the other flamboyant and the two piers fourteen and sixteen stand opposite each other it would be useless to endeavor to trace farther the fantasticism of the later gothic shafts they become mere aggregations of mouldings very sharply and finely cut their bases at the same time running together in strange complexity and their capitals diminishing and disappearing some of their conditions which in their rich striation resemble crystals of beryl are very massy and grand others meagre harsh or effeminate in themselves are redeemed by richness and boldness of decoration and i have long had it in my mind to reason out the entire harmony of this french flamboyant system and fix its types and possible power but this inquiry is foreign altogether to our present purpose and we shall therefore turn back from the flamboyant to the norman side of the fillet's isle resolute for the future that all shafts of which we may have the ordering shall be permitted as with wisdom we may also permit men or cities to gather themselves into companies or constellate themselves into clusters but not to fuse themselves into mere masses of nebulous aggregation end of chapter eight the shaft recording by pamela Krantz.